and welcome to today's Greenhouse Environmental Humanities Book Talk. I'm Dolly Jorgensen. I'm Finn Jorgensen. And we're happy to welcome today Matthew Sabert, who's Assistant Professor of Landscape Architecture at the University of Virginia in the US. And he'll be discussing his new volume, Atlas of Material Worlds, Mapping the Agency of Matter, which came out with Routledge in 2021. So we'll give it over to you, Matthew. Great, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for you know, organizing this and, and having uh, me. It's, it's it's a pleasure to, to be here. Um, it, it seems you guys are have a really great thing going on here with uh, the greenhouse uh, group. I, I look forward to you know, watching some of the other uh, talks as well. And um, as as I've just recently informed, I believe there's 84 of them at this point. So I have my I got a summer uh, busy uh, with that. Um, but uh, thank you again. Um, I'll be starting off with uh, a reading from the introduction um, of, of the book that sort of sets the, the stage for the larger kind of mission um, and, and general concepts behind this collection that's exploring the, the agency of non-living materials as an often sort of hidden but ubiquitous and, and, and um, kind of powerful force on our everyday lives. Um, and it's structured um, uh, across uh, seven chapters that each use a specific material as a lens through which to kind of study these larger dynamics and entanglements, everything from sort of the, the elements such as uranium um, to kind of the elemental such as mud. Um, but with that, I think I'll, I'll go ahead and get started here. Let's see, okay. <clears throat> Smooth, a trace of the vegetal, an undeniable mineral salty percolation too. With a translucent pearl hue and a sprig of thyme gracing its rim, I savor the creation. It's not as ornamental as my companions across the table, held in a bespoke ceramic vessel and topped with a tuft of jet black seaweed, but its visual minimalism closed layers of sensory revelation realize best through tongue and nose. When sipped, the weight belies its ghostly appearance. A strange blend of lithic heaviness and rarefied thinness intimates its high altitude origins. Perhaps a thin aesthetic projection, yes, but its crater likely had just this in mind. Peruvian chef Virgilio Martinez Velez is known for guiding his patrons through space. From beneath the crashing waves of the Pacific Ocean, up and over the great continental divide of the Andes, and down again into the human tropics of the Amazon jungle, never leaving their seat at the dining table. His plates are built around ecosystems, drawing on site-specific species of plants and animals, often incorporating indigenous cultural practices to create gastronomical portals into other worlds. His cocktails are no different. In fact, the drink I'm so enamored by was built around a mineral, from the only family of rocks eaten by humans, salt. But not just any salt, this was salt from Las Salineras de Maras, or the salt pans of Maras in Peru's Sacred Valley, between Cusco and Machu Picchu. A sip from this coupe transports one over 300 miles and up about 10,000 feet in elevation. <clears throat> Dating back to pre incan times, the salt pans of Maras are like a vast community garden carved into a valley's steep shoulders. But instead of squash and sunflowers, families and individuals farm sodium chloride in designated pots. It's quite the striking landscape to encounter. 
Most visitors hail a car from the nearby town, entering the valley from above. <clears throat> My pilgrimage, however, whistle having been wet in days earlier in Lima, had me hike in on foot from below. A brisk 30-minute ascent from the Urubamba River, snaking upwards between arid mountain folds, eventually reveals a stark white mass rising above the trail's horizon as the veritable goat path bends back against the cliff. <clears throat> Several minutes further, the gleaming mass grows and unfolds into an intricately sculpted painter's palette. Around 5,000 shallow ponds caked in white crystals bleed with ochres, umbers, roses, and rusts, beautifully terraced along the valley's contours. Each step gives a satisfying crunch as one finally steps into the network of paths and pans. Runnels and channels, some carved into the soil, others fashioned with overlapping ceramic shingles, burble past and direct salty brine from a nearby spring into the sepia-hued wells. The fruiting font of a process millions of years in the making, the spring eventually emerged as tectonic plates shifted, first impounding part of an ocean into a lake, then burying the lake's salt deposit beneath a mountain now called Kanwakinwe only to be slowly dissolved and brought to the surface by a subterranean stream. When a pool fills with this primeval solution, its earthen walls and floor muscled into shape by hand, yet still abiding by the valley's form, the runnel is plugged. Its flow continuing down to other pools or draining into the valley below. The brine up to two inches in depth, then rests under the sun's heat. After a few days of evaporation, the sodium and Chlorine ions, having been dissolved by the water's polarization, bond and crystallize into flakes. The flakes into geometric shards, and the shards eventually into a sedimented crust precipitated along the bottom of the pool. The process is repeated until three to four inches of salt accrues. Salineros, or salt miners, scrape this into mounds with flat rakes, shoveling them with baskets into greater mounds and adjacent dry plots to drain further, then port their harvest to storage sheds and eventually funnel the glistening grains, a spectrum from white to pink to brown, based on the fluctuating minerality of the brine and pools, into bags to be loaded on trucks and sold throughout Peru and neighboring regions, and even online through Amazon, of course. Each earthen pool, no, no more than a foot deep and roughly the size of a single car garage floor, produces an average of about 400 pounds of salt per month during the dry season. Possibly continuing a communal governance similar to the Incans, the pools are designated by the people of neighboring towns, Maras and Pichingoto, to local families for production. The number of pools and location determined by family size and seniority. Pools are inherited by children from their parents, with many working their wells from an early age into late life, just as their parents, grandparents, and Incan ancestors did before them. In fact, legend has it that this all began with Ayar Chachi, one of the four siblings believed to have founded the Incan Empire. After being trapped by his brothers and sisters in a cave, jealous and fearful of his power, Chachi wept salty tears, tears that continue to emerge from the ground to feed the salt pans. I can't help but think I consumed a few tears in my cocktail back in Lima, an unsubtle metaphor for modern tourism's infiltration of indigenous Peru and a multi-century legacy of Western exploitation. <clears throat> This convergence of colonization, governance, mythology, economy, transportation, landform making, solar evaporation, salt crystallization, material aesthetics, tourism, all the way to Michelin-starred gastronomy hundreds of miles away with cocktail in hand, revolves around a rock, is animated by. This seemingly innocuous inanimate material, 
a simple one-to-one -one mineral compound of sodium and chlorine, quite prevalent around the world, dissolved in oceans and buried in mountains, catalyzes a vibrant web of dynamics and relationships across all areas of human life and beyond. Salt is more than just sodium chlorine and its useful marriage, but also cultures, economies, and ecologies. But we seldom think of this liveliness. Salt as an actor, an agent, an expression, and interaction. With such influence, it seems inadequate to relegate it to the impotent terms that are traditionally paired with such a material, inanimate, inert, lifeless. Salt has played a leading role in everything from the Union winning the American Civil War, the salt famine, to serving as insurance against energy crises, the US Strategic Petroleum Reserve, storing over 600 million barrels of crude oil in subterranean salt domes along the Gulf Coast, to housing the largest lithium reserve in the world, Bolivia's Solar Data Uni, to winter road de-icing across the globe, to a plethora of other industrial uses, and various culturally significant salt harvesting operations similar to the salt pans in uh, Maras such as the elevated structures of the Anyana Salt Valley in Spain, or the camel-led commutes to the Danakil Depression in Ethiopia. So from there, salt wages its own subtle battles against other materials, systems, and human constructs. From salt corrosion of vehicles in northern climates to the salinization of agricultural fields in the Aral Sea Basin of Central Asia to saltwater intrusion and the loss of land in South Louisiana. Labeling a material like salt inanimate paints a misleading picture. Might we be missing something in how we conceive of and live with the non-living? So the story of salt in Peru with its far-reaching connections and constructions is an aperitif for what follows, for the kinds of questions this book attempts to energize. What roles do non-living materials have in our lives? Might a closer examination of those roles reveal an undeniable agency we have long overlooked or disregarded? If so, does this material agency change our understanding of the social structures, ecologies, economies, cosmologies, and landscapes that surround us? Does an understanding uh, or does an altered understanding change how we intersect and entangle across human and non-human lives and systems? And perhaps most importantly, um, why does this matter? How might this knowledge and outlook empower us? So by asking abnormal questions about very normal materials, we enter into a complex network of relations across varied scales of time and space. Composed as an atlas, the chapters of this book thus accustom the reader to the agency of non-living materials by assisting in the navigation of uncommonly charted territories and times. It's an ontological attunement of sorts, the agenda as the metaphysical repositioning of the physical particularly the inanimate matter of elements and elemental materials as equal agents of power. The purpose is to catalyze a more productive and ultimately richer way of approaching the world than current neoliberalism or even noble environmentalism as we accelerate into the global climate crisis. This is a project where materials understood as a type of kin that runs through us, composes us, directs us as much as we exert ourselves upon it and its source landscapes. So this kinship is achieved by rendering the agency of non-living materials through an unusual leveling of subjects, objects, and environments into their respective elemental materiality. A new sensitivity and engagement, a new practice, with a world increasingly in social, ecological, and cognitive crisis is thus set into motion. So put simply, this book dares readers to see the world anew, from material up. The subtle yet paradigmatic recalibration of political ecology 
from a new materialist lens is achieved with attention to aesthetics and entertainment through a proposed genre of ontocartographic stories. Fusing ontology, a study of being, by calling on a metaphysics of the relational nature behind all things, and cartography, a science or practice of map making, by calling on the world building and wayfinding powers of mapping, with the narrative arc and emotive power of the story, this nascent genre of ontocartography attempts to render an ideologically flat view of the world. A flatness where human, fungi, mineral, thing perform upon an equal playing field where all forces and flows, materialities, are or can become lively, effective, and signaling, signaling often as group networks, assemblages, or ecologies of actors. Ontocartographic protagonists are often not human, often not even living, but rather mineral, chemical, elemental. Their stories are almost always telescopic, scalar. The characters and materials in this case require understanding as both the irreducible matter from which they come to the larger planetary multi-actor assemblages and ecologies within which they live. This understanding of the nature of being or way of seeing the world, a weaving of new materialism, actor network theory, nature culture entanglement and transcorporeality to employ the, the jargon of academia explored in, 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 the, uh, in the book with an underscored focus on non-living material is at the heart of the practical sensibility attempting to be cultivated within these pages. It's not intuitive. It's not effortless for the reader or writer to approach the world in such a way as we're up against a few millennia of human-centered thought of a human commanded hierarchy of agency. Moreover, how can a story written by and in the language of humans successfully achieve such a position of worldly flatness, of material equality? It appears futile by definition. There are a few strategies in response to this, such as illustrating the alien hybridity of human bodies with respect to the plethora of microorganismic communities supporting their health and physiology, that insofar as anything acts at all, it has already entered an agentic assemblage with a multitude of bacterial consortia. But in truth, the story is a medium of communication and thus necessarily requires species-specific symbols and syntax. S still, the ontocartographic story is a unique undertaking, attempting to capture something inherently resistant to representation, a flat ontology or worldview of all matter. And for that reason, this book embraces a collogic technique of word and image, synthesizing quantitative analysis, qualitative representation, and radical cartography. Chapters of, of the book weave a story read as much through language as through its cartographic mappings, co-constructing the narrative. The chapters also require loosening, a dislodging of readers' normative perceptions of space, time, and agency. This is both preparatory advice for the reader and desired result. And as illustrated in Madas Peru, salt is multitudes more than a tasty rock supporting gastronomical inventions. Salt is elemental, sodium and chlorine, whose atoms packed tightly together in a cube to form crystals of halite were sedimented and buried by geological forces at the scale of tectonic plates in millions of years, well before humans were humans. Salt figures into the genesis of a people, bridging man and land, a way of life, an identity. Salt expresses itself as an undeniable force, challenging human-centered and designed worlds. Salt makes worlds too, in lively participation with other living and non-living actors. Vast scales of time, space, and agency such as this will be navigated uh, or are navigated in the book, challenging the reader's projective uh, flexibility and imaginary prowess. Spaces from the subatomic to the galactic, periods of time from the instant to the astrogeological are traversed. A material guide will accompany part human voice, 
part materialist expression, part wayfinding cartography, entangled in composition. And although the authors of the volume most, mostly come from the practice and research of landscape architecture, but when I pose the question, what might this knowledge and outlook afford us? This us is equally the designer reading a site in its context or specking source material for a project as it is this, uh, the quotidian consumer shopping for the latest iPhone or driving through the fracking fields of North Dakota on their way to the county fair. So landscape architecture is particularly a versatile lens through which to study such multi-scalar and complicated dynamics as it inherently is interdisciplinary, navigating the social justice issues of public space, the socio-ecological issues of ecosystem performance and interface, the space making and engineering of architecture, the horticulture of the garden, economics and logistics of infrastructure, all the way to the demystification of those far off landscapes of extraction, seldom seen and rarely considered. Thus, the book holds a certain irreverence for binary categorizations, um, designer, daily citizen, architect, landscape architect, in pursuit of empowering a readership of all designers of the built environment, including those untrained in the design professions. As, well, as um, we potentially might uh, discuss uh, later on, the selected materials composing the atlas guide one through a diverse collection of, of these nature culture entanglements, from the, the recreation across Florida's beaches to the lithium mining in, in Chile, fueling the world's green energy transition. And so investigating these domains of life, human and non-human, through ontocartographic stories, affords new ways of seeing, knowing, and thus acting in a complex world. Consider it the proffering of a new power. Thank you. Thank you. This was great. I mean, it, it looks fabulous, the book, I think. Uh, so I'm definitely looking forward to digging further into that on my own. But while we're here together, we should also talk about it then. Um, so there's a, a couple of things we can discuss. So just also a reminder for you in the chat to, uh, to let us know uh, if you have questions. Uh, and I think I'd like to start by asking uh, you a bit about this the connection between, you know, the cartography, the maps that you talked about, uh, and this concept of, of an atlas uh, as a collection of maps. Um, there, I guess, you know, why, why this collection of maps? You know, what was the, in a way, the selection criteria? You know, there's the, the thematic. Uh, you have talked about the... Uh, the materials, is only the materials that have organized it, or did you have other considerations then in putting it together? That's a good question. Um, well, there's, yeah, many considerations, um, everything from, you know, yeah, the material that was selected, the author's sort of uh, uh, geographic focus, as well as, you know, geospatial data sets that were available or unavailable. Um, additionally, you know, just photography, again, that was available or unavailable. Um, I mean, I often use a, a, a drone when I travel for research so I can get uh, specific shots, but some of the other researchers um, don't and, and they didn't have that sort of photography to supply me. So a lot of those constraints and limitations were just based on kind of the, the subject matter. But ultimately, I would say what really kind of informed them. Um, this is this is true for most of the chapters, and my, there, there's probably some exceptions. But generally, we actually started with the narrative, with the text. Um, 
and, and beginning to sort of go through there and sort of highlight the specific sort of uh, moments or references that we felt um, could benefit from a more enriched sort of exploration through, through imagery and through geospatial, geospatial data sets. Um, <clears throat> and then ultimately it's also been kind of asking ourselves um, how, and it's, it's, and it's not, so that's where it began, just kind of trying to strengthen the, the, the narrative, strengthen the text. But then we also wanted the images to almost have a narrative of their own that was in parallel, but uh, a bit expanded from what was in the text. And so once we had sort of a general sort of start of kind of maps or general um, you know, graphic um, representations we wanted to, to work on, we, we began sort of seeing those as, uh, again, as sort of this parallel narrative and making sure that uh, it, it worked in sequence and it sort of worked um, you know, going across uh, scales. Um, and so there, there weren't too many sort of dramatic jumps uh, back and forth, uh, but ultimately, we were, or I should say, when I say we, I say myself as well as um, I've had some research assistants and graduates, uh, graduate um, landscape architecture students, and then well as well as the contributing authors for the, the chapters. We we wanted those to make sure we wanted to make sure that the images really could be read as a separate narrative um, if if desired. But again, ultimately, it was this idea of them kind of working together to be something more than you know just the sum of those two parts. Yeah, I mean, and that's always a challenge then when you, I mean, not just write with very, like, or you aim to to write about something very complicated using different types of, of sources, but also when you're a team of, of authors uh, writing together. So could you say something about how, how you made it cohere then across this group uh, of authors? I mean, who, who were the other authors? Where were they coming from? Uh, what did they bring to the project? Yeah, um, well, I, I will be candid and, and sort of confess that I was thinking originally that, you know, uh, edited, edited collection would be easier to pull together than authoring, you know, just a book by myself. But I don't know, I think I might question that. In some ways, I, I might now say that it could be easier to kind of do the whole thing by myself because there's all of this sort of, you know, negotiation and, um, navigation of different people's time schedules and, and things like that. And ultimately I felt like I was just herding cats. Um, and, and so, so, yeah, that, that was a huge challenge just trying to, you know, get people to submit their, their pieces uh, in a, a timely fashion. Um, and so though, before I, I started the project um, or how, how I began to just sort of build the collection of the contributing authors, was pretty much just um, yeah, kind of emailing uh, colleagues and friends to ask one if they were interested, um, and then two if they weren't, what could they recommend someone else who was? And I was thinking most people that I would email are like, hey, I'm sorry, I don't have the, the time, but here are some great people to uh, look into. But I think everyone that I emailed said yes, um, which is <laughs> was good in, in many ways. But what that actually ended up um, resulting in is that everyone, except for one of the chapter authors, um, works within sort of the landscape architecture profession, whether that's you know professionally or more in an academic uh, setting. The outlier was uh, the chapter that's sort of a coda that 
It's meant to sort of tie a, a lot of these threads together. She's a computational biologist that we worked on in a project in, in New York together with. Um, and then obviously the, the preface is um, by Stacey Alima, who's more in, in environmental humanities than in landscape architecture. But yeah, I would say that, I guess in, in to, to the advantage of the book, since everyone was more or less coming from a similar way of working and research, you know, through uh, sort of this multidisciplinary practice of, of landscape architecture, I feel like that was advantageous in um, kind of unifying these things uh, more than maybe, you know, if there's a, a variety of professions kind of writing. Um, and then I'd also say, I think just kind of tasking them with exploring these dynamics through the lens of a singular, simple material um, also is obviously a sort of an underlying or one of the core ideas behind the book. And I think that really work to the advantage of making sure that these all kind of worked as a collection of these sort of disparate um, elements. Um, though, though having said that, I mean, I think what's also really nice about the book is that, um, and I should say the original idea was that actually each chapter would be a little separate booklet that then sort of uh, slips into a sleeve as a collection. But obviously that was gonna be too, too expensive for the, the bookmaker. So the, the publisher made me just do a, a regular book. Um, but I was originally planning that each chapter could be sort of understood as, as, as by itself in a way. And I know Rutledge, at least their sort of business model um, makes, at least in libraries or academic settings, makes singular chapters kind of available. Um, so in, 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 in that way, it's still meant to be um, sort of enjoyed in, in different ways from an uh, entire collection all bound in, in one sort of uh, binding to these uh, more sort of singular moments uh, based on chapters. So I guess uh, a natural follow-up question with that is like, it's often interesting to talk then a bit about the process and, you know, producing the book and working with the press. And it is, I mean, it's, a, as I said, a really, really nice book. Uh, and it's also pretty far, well, I see it from particularly the standard Routledge book. So uh, how, how was it working with Routledge here, with the press in general? I mean, what what kind of, of arguments did you use to make such a book? How invo involved were the press uh, also in the, the shaping of the book beyond your vision? Um, yeah, that's a good question. So, well, I should say the book project actually originally started with a different publisher um, that was much more, um, I guess known for making sort of custom books um, that would have, you'd have a lot more control over the actual physical design of the book. But just as I was getting all final materials ready, um, you know, the, the pandemic hit and my funding just sort of <laughs> evaporated. And so I wasn't able to actually uh, pay for that. Um, but I had also been in conversation uh, with Rutledge um, because the chair of my department has, has a relationship with them publishing some books. So he was able to kind of put me in touch and I could submit my materials that then they sort of uh, shared with some um, um, reviewers to get a sense of if it's, you know, marketable, if there's value in these ideas, things like that. So I think I, I shared a simple or a single chapter with images and then essentially sort of a a larger kind of outline and, and abstract about the, the, the larger uh, book. Um, and they were totally game. And not only would I not have to pay them anything to make the book, 
but they would actually pay me a very tiny sum of money to do the designing myself. Um, and so, yeah, the entire book is completely designed, uh, every little element of it by myself and, and my team of, of research assistants um, over you know, three years or something. Um, and so there, there was definitely some limitations when I uh, sort of transitioned to Rutledge um, based on, um, yeah, kind of graphic design, things, things like that. There was, I forget what it was, but there was, I, I was originally gonna have some of the you know, narrative text overlap much more with the images, but for whatever reason, they said they couldn't do that. Um, there's some other limitations. I forget what it was or what they were. Um, but ultimately, I also think I maybe cheated, not cheated the system, but um, got lucky with the number of images I was able to include. I mean, almost half the pages are images, honestly, full bleed images. Um, and that's generally a pretty expensive process. And <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be saying this because it's being recorded, but I think what happened is that midway through working with the book with the, the team I was working with, that team transitioned, someone left or something like that, and so I, I was put to a new team. And I think they actually um, forgot how many images I was allowed to include. And so I kind of was able to sort of sneak it under the, uh, yeah, through the system in, in a way. And I think lucked out in being able to include so many full bleed images and still, yeah, still keep keeping the cost rather low. Um, but yeah, I guess more specifically to your question, they, I was, I was sort of surprised how little editorial power they wanted to express or exercise, I should say. Um, and again, I think that's, uh, I think I got a bit lucky with that. But part of it was this particular option where if the author is, you know, designing and typesetting the book, I think, I, th I think that already just yeah, puts a lot of their, um, their power out of their hands in a way. Um, so I would say, I mean, the little sum of money they paid me is, <laughs> is so tiny compared to how many hours went into the actual design. Um, so I, th I think it definitely worked to their advantage still. Yeah, that's, I mean, that that's typically what it, it sounds like in my experiences that they, unlike some other presses um, where, you know, you get a lot of service from them um that's that's not the case so but it, you did a gorgeous job with the book um yourself uh one of the things i wanted to ask about um was you know this focus then on you call it non-living material and thinking about it as well with this label of non-living and while you're trying to push back on that in some ways when, when I hear your description of, of salt and the way it accumulates over time, which allows it then to be harvested, um, or the images that you were showing from the chapter on uranium that show how it changes over time, right? Because of the half-life of, of mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the element. Um, or you have a chapter, was it mud? Um, which is, you know, uh, has, I would assume organic uh, material in it, um, you know, as a thing. So are, are, yeah, what are you doing with the label non-living? And is it in fact a label we should be using or do we need to rethink what life means 
what living is? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Thank you for calling me out on that. Um, yeah, yeah, non-living isn't isn't accurate. Obviously, I'm making the the entire book is making the point about that. Yeah, the, these seemingly non-living materials are actually quite alive. Um, I I mean, so I think you're you're completely correct. Though I don't know if there is a label that would do its service or justice. That's the thing I think we ultimately come up against that we, for the sake of communication, sometimes we have to use inaccurate labels. Um, and that I'm trying to challenge, use it and challenge it through kind of the, the larger narrative. Um, which, I mean, it kind of makes me think of, um, I mean, there's a lot of talk of kind of non-humans and, and more than human as perhaps better. But even, you know, because, yeah, even more than human, which is meant to be sort of de-center the human, it's still, I, I would argue, centering the human, right? You're still saying that something, you're using that as the point of which you're kind of um, um, comparing or contrasting against. Um, and so, yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's a challenging uh, question. Um, I don't know if, if there is a better label. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to argue that even, but sometimes labels, I don't know if, if this is the best way to say this, but sometimes labels are less important than your way of practicing life in a way, like the, the daily practice of, of life. And even though I am using that the label of, of non-living, well, the whole spirit behind the book is arguing that there is no, these binaries, living, non-living, are just are unhelpful, inaccurate, um, and increasingly uh, disproven, right? Um, so I, I, again, I, I guess I'm, I'm just sort of stumbling around with an answer here, but just for the sake of the communication, I, I do think we need to use labels at times, but as long as you're, there's sort of a transparent definition of them, or even you know, a, a transparent usage of it, even though it's not, it's not like the perfect term. Absolutely. And it's very hard to come up with a perfect term, as you say. Um, yeah. And and, I, mean, and I think Mandy had a question that, that kind of follows nicely on this, which is that you had talked about energizing narratives uh, about non-living material. And he said, so the material implication of that um, is, you know, the relationship between energy and matter. So, so how does your book, how does this collection then uh, deal with that relationship of actually energizing, if you will, uh, this non-living matter with energy and its relationship to these things. And are there, I mean, you, you have a chapter on the lithium battery, obviously, or yeah. lithium, and you have a chapter about um, uranium. So uh, could you say a little bit more about those? Yeah, yeah. Um... I guess to, just to preface again, I'm, I'm trying to energize these these materials, uh, yeah, through images and, and words. Begin to talk about their you know their forces, their propensities, how they affect our, our our daily lives. But in a more sort of specific way, in respect to kind of energy, as you mentioned, I think uranium and lithium are potentially the well, uh, yeah, also crude oil, but that gets a bit more complicated. Um, I mean, have very intimate relationships with, you know, energy industry or just energy in and of itself. Like you mentioned, the half-life of uranium 
is a type of kind of an embodied energy or or yeah sort of the, the losing of embodied energy in, in, over a long period of, of time um and so i think again i mean i, I think ultimately it comes down to things the disciplines of like chemistry and physics um and on, on, i mean I, I know those things to a degree i'd say probably a very sort of shallow superficial degree um but as i explore in lithium it's it's really interesting how it, it gets it's part of the agency of lithium is, is about how the um um the atoms actually act right sort of the the electrons and and the ability for electrons to move from kind of particle to particle and how that is actually the creation of energy that allows us to uh, use lithium in such an energy dense way through batteries and such, um, which is really exciting. And, and, and that way, it's I feel like it's really easy to make the argument for uh, these non living materials having um, agency because there is this um, again the sort of either physical or chemical propensity behind how they interact with other materials and, and elements. Um, um, and but again, I would say even even these other materials like sand that don't have that that same um sort of agency or energy that you can pinpoint still um still has that within its system how the sort of dunes migrate um underwater or um let's see what's another example um how how, how clay has a certain sort of propensity to kind of hold its its physical form um and i i, I hope i'm answering the question but i guess one way i I, I want to answer the question is I plan on getting more into that in, in my subsequent book. And so I, I just sort of, this book was just released last summer. I guess it's almost a year now. It feels shorter than that. But I am already or just beginning to start on a, a sort of sequel um, that specifically looks at um, elements and rare earth minerals for the green energy trans, uh, transition. So lithium is potentially the most famous one, but Cobalt is becoming really, really prevalent. Um, nickel, copper, et cetera, or there's just the demand for that is just a soaring. Um, and, and, and the idea is to kind of explore these, you know, lesser known uh, minerals to kind of argue that the, the green energy transition isn't going to be so utopian as we might um, imagine, because it still requires immense extraction and exploitation of oftentimes sort of uh, far-flung landscapes, at least from sort of the Western affluent uh, countries, but that really hits, hits the ground in uh, uh, yeah, much sort of uh, dis disadvantaged communities in the Democratic Republic of Congo, or I'm trying to think of a, another one, or yeah, in, in Bolivia and Peru, uh, where the indigenous communities have been affected by sort of decreasing um, aquifer levels due to the enormous uh, quantities of brine extraction to produce lithium. I just wanted to ask a, a quick follow-up question about the, the materials selected and in a way their qualities and their life cycles, because you haven't said too much about waste uh, as a you know, part of this life cycle then of, of uh, materials. They have a life, you know, you, you talked a bit about the extraction and its use, you know, they have a life and then they need to be disposed of, treated, sorted, uh, or they can become problems. They evade control, uh, etc. So, so 
do you do you talk about that in the book the the waste aspect of of these materials um some probably not to the degree that i should but again I, I, in some way i want to punt and say that i, I plan on talking about in much more detail in, in the next book but uranium i definitely talk about sort of the storage of nuclear waste in the landscapes where the original you know atomic detonations were um, um, experimented with and and sort of the the legacy and the often toxic legacy that uh, produces um, both and you know the, the, the animals and, and, and plants that inhabit those areas but also what oftentimes is is the sort of Native American communities that have been responsible for mining um, um, some of that uh, uranium um, similarly in lithium uh, in the lithium chapter I guess I don't get too far into it but the biggest and again this, i want to explore this more in the, the next uh book i mean the biggest e-waste uh landfill in the world is in ghana in accra ghana and it's just enormous um, it's almost a city unto itself uh, but i think that's incredibly important to understand how and again this this has to do with a lot of like renewable you know utopian images of batteries and things like that uh, many times, yeah, it, it gets thrown away as opposed to, you know, recycled or something like that. And again, just as the um, materials were extracted from these uh, landscapes, countries, communities, um, in, in usually a, a rather exploitative manner, the same waste goes to those exploited countries, which is obviously not, not just. Um, but I, I think that is really important to kind of understand, and I'd like to explore that more um, in, the, in, the new, in the near future. Um, and, but ultimately, it, it does come down to, at least in, in the states here, you know, what, what, what are called the three R's, uh, reduce, reuse, recycle, right? Which seem really simple and, and sort of old fashioned at this point, but those truly are like kind of the, the keys to many of our um, problems. And, and, and there, there's a particular prioritization in their order. Reduce is the first one for a reason. Because, um, I mean, recycling and, uh, or reusing and recycling um, can work, but it doesn't be just sort of the re reduction of consumption. Um, but it does seem like recycling of these uh, particular mi minerals, rare earth metals, things like that, is becoming more and more economically viable, or maybe a better way to say that is profitable. So I do think uh, you'll see an increase in recycling of these uh, materials. I mean, even I don't know. Again, here here in the states, um, there there's since the pandemic and a sort of shortage or just the the increase in demand for a lot of these rare earth metals. There's a part I believe it's the catalytic converter in in hybrid cars and things like that, such as the Prius, that becomes so valuable that thieves are oftentimes stealing just the catalytic converter off cars to go sell that and they're not getting the same price as if it was you know new or whatever but again it's still it, the economics are behind it that incentivizes that and that there is a demand for for um uh these particular uh metals that aren't necessarily in, in high density as much as you know they increasingly are in, in other cars but again the, the economics are supporting that um yeah supporting it I've seen also that happen in Europe, uh, the, the catalytic converters. And yeah, yeah it's crazy. 
having written a book on recycling that came out just before the pandemic, I also, you know, agree completely then with these uh, this aspects of recycling of materials too. Uh, I thought now for the last bit, we'll switch a bit to talk about research methods. Uh, I could get to Micah's question finally about drones, because uh, Micah really wants to play with drones. And <laughs> she was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how you use drones that you mentioned initially then. So, and, and perhaps think a bit about the, the possibilities of using drones in the environmental humanities too, you know, beyond, you know, taking pictures to display information. So how can you use them as tools for analysis? Uh, and can you say a bit more about, you know, how you did it? Did you use your own expertise? Did you outsource it? Uh, what were the ethical considerations in terms in regards to both privacy, but also in a way kind of connections to military purposes of drones uh, often? Yeah, no, it's a really, really great question. Um, yeah, drones, <laughs> drones are complicated. Um, I, I love them, but I would say I, I pretty much only fly them in remote locations or, you know, to get footage of um, facilities where I would, would otherwise wouldn't be able to get that, that footage. Um, though that, that presents... <laughs> That presents a lot of risk as well, just uh, legal risk and things and things like that. Um, but yeah, drones are annoying. There's nothing more um, uh, sort of unpleasant than if you're just enjoying, I don't know, a picnic in the park and you hear a buzzing overhead or, or anything like that. They're like they're incredibly an, an <laughs> annoying um, thing and can be an, an extremely uh, or extreme sort of invasion of privacy. So again, I, I don't really fly them in areas where there's kind of people around, generally speaking. Um, I mean, having said that, they're a incredibly powerful tool. Um, there's only so much you can read from the landscape from, you know, the human eye level. Um, and there's only so much you can get from, you know, satellite photography if the, if the location actually has satellites that have a higher high enough resolution to get that. That's another thing. Like I've, again, I've, I've traveled to uh, uh, Ghana before and we were uh, doing some drone work for a community and uh, there was no real satellite imagery or geospatial data to be, to be used. So it, it was about sort of building that from scratch. But th there is this really interesting perspective that drones get that's, um, I mean, it's like, yeah, it's a bird eye view between the human eye view and the sort of satellite view that's so unique. They can get these oblique angles. You can you know, obviously make videos and everything uh, like that. But there's so much of a landscape you can learn and read, like visually read, through that heightened perspective that is just um, priceless, in, in, in my opinion. Um, and obviously, I'm saying that from a perspective of uh, you know, a landscape uh, architect. Um, but I would say that's equally true in environmental humanities. Um, and just to be able to speak about how a system works, you can see the hydrology in a different way. You can see the, cheap, the seasons change um, by kind of taking uh, uh, repeated photographs over the year, which is another thing that oftentimes satellite or some satellite imagery doesn't have is those more sort of seasonal temporal changes that we want to be able to capture, um, which is really, really helpful. Um, and so I, I completely support the use of drones, but I, I say that with, um, with a caveat that don't don't annoy other people because they 
again, that they can they can be used as tools for for evil as well. You know, like like the military in many ways. Um, and I mean, you also do like like I said, I oftentimes use them to sort of get photographs of extraction sites where I'm I'm literally like in a rental car a mile or two down the road, flying the drone down to get photographs. Um, which again probably is <laughs> illegal in, in, in some respects or and, and depends on on the specific facility um but it they, they yeah their drones can be so tiny that um and and so high up that no one would would know and, and so that you know it's a i guess a sort of reduction of of that risk and so i would just you know make sure you know the the um the laws you're breaking if, if you're breaking them um but I, th I think it is a really powerful tool even in citizen science to uh begin to sort of call out um you know an industrial sort of um or you know yeah Co corporations businesses industries uh breaking environmental laws and things like that so it can be used in in, in both ways um I think I answered all of her questions. Oh, and I guess, yeah, so the drone work was always uh, by myself. Um, I mean, I, I taught myself how to use it. It's it's super simple. Drones these days are so user-friendly and amateur-friendly. They have sensors to make sure you don't crash, crash into things. I mean, I've had a couple close calls with batteries running out and things like that, but luckily I've always been um, fortunate to, to get the drone back home. All right. Um, so I guess another than related question about the, I mean, research methods. So this is in a way how environmental humanities can pick up methods and things that you work with in landscape architecture, but it also works the other way in that this is very much a project while you're situated in landscape architecture, it very much draws on environmental humanities literature, environmental humanities conversations, which is, uh, I mean, one thing I found is quite fascinating, uh, also with other disciplines like uh, Olaf Eliasson, the artist, you know, when you they went to one of his big exhibitions and the, the bookstore there, it was full of environmental humanities books. So, so anyway, environmental humanities as a field gets read, it gets used, you know, it moves around. So could you just say a little bit more about how, how you connect with environmental humanities, how you used to feel and what you get out of it that you couldn't get elsewhere? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, just like landscape architecture, environmental humanities covers so much ground. It's it's, uh, it's so, somewhat difficult to to categorize. Um, I guess I, I I would preface my answer in saying that um, I, I guess yeah, it's probably similar to environmental humanities, but landscape architecture inherently is such an interdisciplinary field. Um, it draws from the arts, the sciences, humanities, policy, etc. I, I would say it's 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 uh, both its greatest strength and its greatest weakness that it, you know, it, it, it sort of synthesizes all this information, which uh, makes it into a really, you know, potent discipline. But maybe it's different in, in Norway. I know you guys have a bit more of a um, encultured idea of, of design. But in the States, I mean, if you told nine out of 10 people, maybe probably more than nine out of 10 people on the streets, um, like I'm, I'm a landscape architect, they would have no idea what you're talking about. Um, and it, it's it's difficult to explain because landscape architects work on everything from the the bench at a public park to like large regional planning to you know 
a project like this book that goes on sort of the global and even um, interstellar, interstellar scale. Um, I guess that's just to say that I, that we might, I mean, I'm, I'm interested with a, a lot of these topics, obviously, but ultimately it is for the purpose of trying to better the world in, in some ways, meaning that, that we have this climate crisis that is only getting worse um, and that no one discipline can solve it and that it requires, um, you know, all, all these disciplines coming together and all these different bodies of, of expertise. And I would say that's also what kind of environmental humanities is doing in some ways is to kind of bring these different different viewpoints and, and put it from the, the perspective of, um, I guess, a, a culture for lack of a, a better term, because we can, you know, offer all these sort of technological fixes um, and, and oftentimes described as, you know, uh, sort of the techno-scientific solutions, whether that's engineering or, or science, but those those are only, a, that's, that's only a tool where you need sort of a, a, a body of people or a culture behind it that can use that tool and can use it in an appropriate fashion and understand its uh, sort of strengths and weaknesses behind it. Um, and I think yeah, environmental humanities has done a great job of exploring um, those ideas. I mean, I would say Donna Haraway has been an incredible sort of influence. Obviously, Stacey Alimo has um, uh, or, or wrote the preface to the book. Um, but I, th I think we need entirely new ways of thinking and sort of Western scientism or this belief that science can sort of solve everything or solution, like uh, solutions exist, I think is just kind of erroneous and wrong. And we need to think in a much more nuanced uh, way of kind of approaching the world that I think humanities operates more in, um, in, a, in a more sort of normal fashion or more I don't know that's the best way to, to describe it, but they, they explore those ideas as a, as a sort of important body of their work. Well, you mentioned Western science belief and, and you know, basis of things. And that leads well, I think, to Micah's question, second question, uh, which was about the atlas as a format. So you talked some about cartography, making these maps and the process of making the maps afterwards from the, the texts and your you know, assistance in doing that. But she wanted to know, you know, had you always envisioned this as an atlas, as its format? So did you begin from there or did it emerge later as, oh, I need to make it an atlas? And in particular, then she was interested in how the genre's colonial history, i.e. the atlas as a way of organizing data about people who you are going to colonize, you know, indigenous people who will come under your subjection, um, might have impacted the way that you worked to put together your atlas? Yeah, yeah these are really great questions. Um, challenging, which is good. Um, well, I guess the, the simple answer to that is it was always conceived as an atlas because um, when the seed of the project first germinated, I was actually um, running a visualization company company, you know, we had some paying clients, not too, too many, um, that focused largely on cartographic storytelling in a way. And the reason we sort of founded and, and ran that company for a short time is because we had just always had a love for maps, um, even before we began to make them ourselves. But once we um, began to sort of learn the tools of it, um, I think that just sort of made us fall more in love with them. 
but with with the understanding that um, th there, I guess there, in, in sort of general population, there's this uh, assumption that maps are sort of objective information. If it's if it's a map, it's real. Um, and you know, when you learn the tools, um, as well as you know, read theory like uh, James Corner's The Agency of Mapping. Um, you realize, you know, that the map is, it's pretty much an argument. I mean, it can be used as argument, it can be used as propaganda, it can be used for whatever purpose you want. And you have so much control over how you visualize information and data, what you include in a map or what you don't include in a map, that there's there's immense power and if it's, it's by no means objective. Um, so that yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of understanding that it, it has traditionally been used as kind of this colonial power uh, with a yes, yeah, specific kind of imperialistic object, objective in a way. And I think we're, or at least the book is trying to counter that in some respect um, to kind of make the argument that there is this sort of reciprocity or use maps to explore the narrative of sort of landscape reciprocity. Um, and at times I would say it's successful at other times, it's probably less than successful. Again, it's still a sort of uh, colonial, uh, tool that is utilized. Um, but I think, uh, again, I mean, as we're kind of using it as less of a, um, I don't know, like, um, objective representation of truth and more as a narrative building, um, element. Um, I think begins to sort of suggest the 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 power uh, behind this this way this sort of methodology of visualizing, and again that power can be used for uh, for the betterment or the sort of uh, worsening of, of certain situations. Well, I just want to thank you, Matthew uh, Sabert, who's assistant professor of landscape architecture at the University of Virginia, for coming and talking about his edited uh, collection, Atlas of Material Worlds, Mapping the Agency of Matter, uh, out with Routledge in 2021. So thank you. And thank you so much for having me. This was, uh, this was quite a pleasure, and the questions were really, really wonderful. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting.